Are you that weirdo who watches old true crime episodes on obscure streaming services? Then this is a podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. That was so sensual and beautiful. I felt very sensual saying that. (laughs) Don't mind me, I'm pantsless. (laughs) Welcome, weirdos and friends. We're back again. This is Happy Hour Gets Weird. I'm Cassie. And I'm Tiffany. And we talk about weird shit and have cocktails while we do it. Yeah. And this week, I was in charge of the cocktail. It's been a minute. And we are drinking a little concoction that I like to call Consider the Consequences. Dun, dun, dun. That's a very dramatic name, and I love it. I'm so happy you made that. You did the little dun-dun because I was going to. So this is an Aperol cocktail. It has Aperol vodka, um, fresh ruby red grapefruit juice, and orange juice, and club soda, of course, because I can't live without it. It's really good. Aperol has kind of like a bitter orange flavor. It's really refreshing, and this would be a perfect brunch cocktail. It was kind of a sunny, nice day today. Mm-hmm. I was just pretending that it was summertime and I was lounging around day drinking. You were uh, on the balcony of a very old Italian Italian villa enjoying mm-hmm. uh, Consider the Consequences. Yes. You were considering the consequences of never coming home. <laughs> yep. Every day. From your Italian summer. Um, that sounds delicious and you can check the recipe and the measurement breakdowns and a picture of that per usual on our social media, Instagram and TikTok. We've also joined TikTok, so you can check that out. And by we, I mean Cassie. We should have lied. I should have said that it was me, actually. <laughs> well, it's me. It's we. It's all Cassie all day on TikTok. I'm afraid. And also, I don't know how to do it. I could never pull off the videos. She's doing such fun things over there so check her out yeah you can just search happy hour gets weird pod i believe um okay well we are in our final episode of our loosey-goosey theme of love this month so we decided to (laughs) cover some true crime couples or killer couples or criminal couples yes or criminal couples I guess uh, at this point you've seen the title and you know which we decided on. Yeah, so we'll just uh, get right to it. How about we shut the fuck up? Okay. You want to go first? Okay. Let's shut the fuck up and start talking. (laughs) Yes, I will go first. Okay, so my main source for my case is an article on medium.com by Delaney R. Bartlett. This and um, an episode of Wicked Attraction Season 1, Episode 11, called Murder at Twilight, Mm. which I had to stream on Pluto, hence our opening. (laughs) Those are my two main sources. I found this story on a bunch of different lists and sites, and that's kind of what turned me on to it, but I found that a lot of the information on those sites was lacking, Mm. so I don't really want to uh, throw them out there as references. Today, I am talking about Ray and Faye Copeland. And this is one of those stories where, like I said, I read one thing and then I dug a little deeper and everything seemed to change. So I was left feeling conflicted. Okay. Anyway, I will get to it. 
Ray Copeland was born in Oklahoma in 1914. He grew up very poor, which only got worse when the Great Depression hit. Ray ended up dropping out of school. He dropped out super young. I think it was in fourth grade. Oh. Yeah. And because of that, he was functionally illiterate. Mm. Also, there wasn't a ton of information on either of these people from their childhood, but Mm -hmm. something that I did learn about Ray was that he seemed to be kind of a troublemaker from early on. And according to the Wicked Attractions episode, Ray's parents did cover for him a lot when he was a kid and would get into trouble. Okay. As a young man, Ray decided that scamming people was a better way to make money than having an honest job. Being illiterate probably didn't help him get any work, though, to be honest. Not to make any excuses for him, but I can't imagine that helped. So Ray started forging checks and stealing livestock. When he was 25, Ray was found guilty of his crimes and spent a year in prison. Ray and Faye met after Ray was released from prison. She was 19 and seven years his junior. Faye also grew up very poor. She was raised in a dirt floor cabin, and her family was very religious. It was said that Ray reminded Faye of her own father, and she liked that. Okay, that's weird. I think that it was because they both were kind of domineering, controlling personalities. Mm, Okay, so it was something she was comfortable with. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Ray also pretended to have more money than he really did when he met Faye, which was obviously appealing to a very young woman who was living in poverty. Right. But, uh, I mean, even if he had money, he was a thief. So anything he had, he didn't really have, right? Right. So the two were soon married and began having kids. They had five children in all. Ray went back to stealing cattle to support his young family, despite the fact he was caught several times and was in and out of jail. Because Ray was always on the wrong side of the law, they moved around a lot. They lived for a while in California, then Arkansas, and finally ended up in Missouri. And Ray was basically a total nightmare. Not only was he a scam artist, he was also extremely physically abusive to everyone in his family. He would often use farm tools or whatever was lying around to inflict his beatings. Yeah, I hate Ray. Yeah, everyone should hate Ray. He is a terrible, terrible person. His son was on that show that I watched, and his son, like, wouldn't even get into how he felt about his dad because it was that negative, basically. It was, yeah, opening. Probably very traumatic to even go there emotionally. Yeah. Triggering, I mean, sorry. Ray was a total piece of shit. And Faye, who was raised fundamentalist Christian, believed she had to obey her husband and never leave him. Mm -hmm. It was just bad. Basically, Ray found the perfect wife for him because she thought that that was something that she had to endure. Mm -hmm. Ray and Faye's children said that Ray treated Faye worse than trash. Yeah, Ray sounds like a piece of human garbage. 100%. So I wanted to explain a little bit about Ray's main criminal activity because I haven't really gotten into that yet. Okay. And this was cattle scams. They went like this. Ray would buy cattle at auctions using a fraudulent check to pay for the cattle and then he would turn around and sell the cattle and try to leave town before the auctioneers were informed that the checks were bad for someone with a fourth grade education that's pretty sophisticated than just going in the middle of the night and trying to wrangle as many cattle as you can yeah when you say like cattle thief you kind of that's what you picture right Mm -hmm. but no he was it's fucking I don't know if ballsy is the right word because I don't want to give him any credit but 
to think of doing that is kind of wild, right? It's it's the audacity for me. <laughs> yeah, like you're ripping off cattle ranchers, which I feel like isn't the group that I'd want to piss off. I wouldn't. Mm-mm. No, I think you're 100% right. <laughs> it never came up, but I'm not sure how we didn't get his ass kicked multiple times. Maybe but, he um, did. Yeah, it didn't come up. Maybe he did. But a lot of times when he would get caught, he would just say, oh, I didn't know that my check was going to bounce. I'll cover it. But then he never would. Right. Mm -hmm. So after a few bullshit scenarios like this, Ray was banned from buying and selling livestock, obviously. Since Ray was banned from cattle auctions, he decided to hire drifters to do his dirty work. Oh my goodness, I fucking hate this guy so much. He fucking sucks. It just seems like so much harder than doing something honestly. Like just get a like work a like a like a job. Just just put that effort into a job. He did work um helping out around farms in his area. Like he was mm-hmm. a farmhand. He did stuff like that, but it just seems like this scam is so much harder than just saving up the money and actually buying cattle and selling it. I don't know. Yeah. So he'd find men, Ray would find men passing through town. Sometimes he would go to like a mission or something where people were staying and he would offer to pay them and give them room and board to help them on their own farmland. And then he would end up getting them to do the scam for him. He would set them up with a bank account and all that kind of stuff so that these drifters could do the scam. And Ray's name wouldn't be on the checks. That is so much effort. That takes so much yeah. effort to find people, set them up with a bank account, room and board them, get them to do what you want to do. You are so right. He could have channeled that energy into like a legitimate business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Okay. That seems more like a fourth grade education <laughs> kind of logic. Yeah. So this worked for a little while, but before Ray knew it, the cops were on to him and he was arrested again and got in trouble again like mm-hmm. it took a little bit but these men were connected back to Ray mm-hmm. so this was the way it was for the Copelands for the majority of their lives pulling off or attempting to pull off these scams Ray in and out of jail plus all of the physical and emotional abuse I cannot imagine living life like this mm-hmm. then In October of 1989, local Missouri police got a tip that human remains could be found on the Copeland's land. Hmm. One of the men that the Copeland's had hired had realized that his life was in danger and basically ran away, stole a car from a car lot, and drove all the way to to Nebraska before stopping to call police. He was so fucking terrified. Well, I'm, I mean, that is commendable that he because he could have just kept on going because how many people have we talked about that witnessed a crime and that just went on about their business he could have just kept on driving through nebraska and on and on and on and the fact that he stopped and called to potentially save other people is commendable yeah so police showed up questioned ray uh they they showed up under the guise of discussing Ray's last livestock scam, which mm-hmm. I'm sure the cops and Ray were probably, I mean, I can't imagine they were strangers to each other at this point, right? Mm-hmm. And while they were there, uh, some officers looked around the property, but nothing was found. They didn't find anything suspicious. No remains were found, anything like nothing like that. So the police kind of hit a dead end there. Then police started getting tips. Ray did work on other people's farms as well. And someone tipped them off that a location that Ray had done work smelled like a dead animal. This little fuck is tricky. So after weeks of searching for more evidence, 
police found human remains, and the Copelands were arrested. Both of them? Yes. Oh, okay. Other pieces of evidence were also found. There was a ledger written by Faye with X's next to 12 men's names, (gasps) including the five men who were found dead. There was also a quilt made out of the dead men's clothing. Oh my gosh, that is just so dark. The victims were identified as Paul Jason Cowart, John W. Freeman, Jimmy Dale Harvey, Wayne Warner, and Dennis Murphy. An autopsy showed that the men were shot in the back of the head. Basically, Ray would use transients to pull off his scams and then murder them when he was done so they couldn't be linked back to him. Oh my goodness. Faye claimed to know nothing of the murders, even after being offered a deal, which she unfortunately refused. She just wouldn't say she knew anything about the murders. They offered her a deal and she said, I can't take a deal I didn't know about. I don't have any information to give you. Faye's children, as well as her court-appointed psychologist, don't believe Faye was guilty of murder. The psychologist that evaluated Faye for the trial said that Faye suffered from battered woman syndrome. But somehow, on a technicality, her psychologist's statement was excluded from her trial. Huh. Okay. So no testimony or evidence about the abuse she suffered from Ray or how he controlled her was allowed in her defense. Faye was found guilty based on the quilt and the handwritten note, neither of which actually proved knowledge of the murders. Right. Besides, I'm sure Ray had Faye write everything down because he was fucking illiterate. Uh, yeah, and also it's just based on what you're saying, in my opinion, it sounds like Faye is guilty of not asking questions. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Um, also, something that was pretty dark, um, I wasn't really sure where to put this in, but the psychologist Lenore E. Walker that was on that Wicked Attraction episode said that sometimes when Ray would bring home these drifters, um, he would force Faye to have sex with them in front of him. Mm. Ray, Ray, Ray. I didn't find that anywhere else. And when I was watching that episode, I was, it, I mean, it's disturbing. I mean, it's really, fucked it, up. I'm not surprised he's a terrible human being. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that he would subject his wife to all forms of abuse. Yeah. So like I said, Faye was found guilty of these five murders. Ray's trial was second and he tried to plead insanity. <laughs> of course he did. Which doesn't even make any fucking sense. Uh, Okay. It's so clearly that he, this is like such a deliberately planned, premeditated sequence of crime. Yeah, sequence of, I don't know. He's just a piece of shit. So he was found guilty of first degree murder as well. Faye and Ray Copeland were the oldest couple in American history to be sentenced to death in 1991 at 69 and 76 years old. Neither ended up being executed though. In 1993, Ray died while on death row. Faye's sentence was changed to life in prison, but in 2002, due to her declining health, Faye was released to a nursing home where she died in 2003. And this is why I said that I was left so conflicted, because even though this is a criminal couples episode, I don't really think that Faye got a fair day in court. I think the fact that her abuse wasn't discussed at all, the psychologist on that episode of Wicked Attraction does not think that Faye was a part of the murders. Mm -hmm. And she 
believed that if she had any knowledge of the crimes, that basically she knew that her life was in danger if she acted mm-hmm. out against Ray. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, like I said, Faye's... Pre- I would say that she's guilty of not asking any questions. Like, where did you get these clothes? Why do you want me to put an X to, next to this man's name? Those are so easy to explain away, though. I mean... Like Ray could have just said, put an X next to his name because he's not going to help me on my next cattle scam. Or, well, that drifter just took off because that's what drifters do. And he left his clothes behind because he took some of mine instead. He stole my clothes. Like, it's so easy to explain it away. And when you are in an abusive relationship, you're not going to ask questions like that because you don't want to get hit. You don't want to get hurt. According to these sources he he was emotionally physically and sexually abusing her yeah he was and she a grew monster. up in an environment where she believed it was her job to just take whatever shit her husband dished out yeah which is fucking awful and like i can't even believe that some people believe that that's their role but but then on the other side of it the police officer on that same show said that Faye was was not innocent, an innocent victim and that she was a strong woman who took care of the farm most of the time because Ray was always gone or in jail and that she knew exactly what was going on and that people shouldn't feel sorry for her. Hmm. So it's a very conflicting situation. I think the only person that knows is Faye herself. I think that Faye probably did know what was going on, but she felt that if she did anything to stop it, that she would be killed. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. That's why I said I left this story feeling conflicted. Mm -hmm. And I almost didn't want to do it because of that. Because we are doing a criminal couples. But, um, I mean, technically she was found guilty. And she did know about the cattle scams. She just didn't know about the murder. According to her. (laughs) So I'm sorry that it's kind of up in the air at the end. But it's a very... It's a case that has a lot of different layers to it mm-hmm. and kind of makes you think you know I just hope that Faye finds a little bit of peace now because she sure as hell didn't get any peace in her life with Ray and that's what it comes down to is whether Faye was aware of what Ray was actually doing or she was you know oblivious she had a shit life yeah she had a shit life so yeah I mean she I think could deserve a little bit of peace now that she is deceased I mean I don't know I think the only person who would ever know the only two people who would ever know what Faye really knew is Ray and Faye I hate that their names rhyme because I kept tripping up when I was trying to read it (laughs) I thought it was kind of cute it is cute no it's cute but when you're reading a story and there's a lot of rhyming or alliteration or whatever, it's just, it gets hard. It gets difficult. It does. And once again, you have told the story wonderfully. I was going to say a wonderful story, but that's a terrible story. But you've told it wonderfully. <laughs> um, Thank you. And also, we have many parallels in the cases we've decided to share today. Do their names rhyme? They're close-ish, yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, either way, Faye was a victim to at the hands of a terrible, terrible monster. Um, but whether she was complicit in murder or accessory, unbeknownst to her, is something that only she knows. 
Well, and a lot on a lot of the lists or whatever, criminal couples, killer couples, there's all of these lists out there. And on a lot of them, they don't talk about the abuse that Faye got. They say that they murdered people and that Faye turned their clothes into quilts. Yeah. So it just gives it a completely different framing of the story if you don't know the the entire situation. Well, that the the version that is that you're talking about is that's out there a lot is you know it's more dangerous it's more dark it's it's provocative gets the people going it gets the clicks (laughs) so all right are you ready for mine because this is a very tragic wild fascinating case i'm ready okay so my sources for this case are a pbs documentary american experience titled the perfect crime a Smithsonian Magazine article and Wikipedia, just to fill in the little holes. On May 22nd, 1924, the nude body of missing 14-year-old Bobby Franks was found in a culvert near Wolf Lake outside of Chicago. His parents had received a ransom note, but before they had a chance to pay, Bobby had been bludgeoned, suffocated with a rag stuffed in his mouth and covered with tape and disposed of in a swampy, secluded culvert. Oh my God, that's awful. Yes, terrible. Whoever had committed this grisly murder had finished it by pouring hydrochloric acid over (gasps) body's face and genitals to try to disguise his identity. Oh my God. Fuck. Yeah, I told you. Are you okay? I'm okay. I'm fine. Okay. Next to the body were a pair of spectacles. Investigators assumed they were Bobby Franks. The funeral director placed the glasses on the boy, but it wasn't until a family member insisted they weren't Bobby's that investigators (gasps) realized they must be the killers. Oh my God, that's awful. Isn't it? Oh God. Yeah. The state's attorney at the time, Robert Crow, was politically ambitious. He had his sights set on mayor of Chicago. Robert Crow saw this case as an opportunity to win public favor and move up in the chain of politics. He saw it as a chance to become one of the most powerful men in Chicago. Investigators had little clues to go on. A report of a gray sedan in the area around the time of the murder. The ransom note and the eyeglasses. Crow started with the glasses. While the prescription was relatively unremarkable, the frame had a unique hinge. Tracing the hinge back to the only optometrist in the Chicago area who was authorized to sell those particular frames, Crow discovered three had been sold. Oh my God, such smart police work. Seriously. I love shit like that. One was purchased by a man who had been abroad for weeks. He was ruled out. The second was sold to a woman who was also ruled out. And the third was sold to Nathan Leopold, a 19-year-old boy from a wealthy family living in Kenwood, an exclusive neighborhood in Chicago's South Side. While it seemed unlikely Leopold would have had anything to do with the horrific murder of a child, Crow sent for him anyway. So who was Nathan Leopold? Nathan was a precocious child with an IQ of around 200. 
He once claimed he spoke his first words at the age of four months. He came from a prominent Jewish family worth about $4 million at the time in 1924. Holy shit. Yeah. That's like 40 million cantaloupes today's money. It's insane how rich his family was. That's why I did cantaloupe math because I don't know it. (laughs) I don't know it either. (laughs) Nathan graduated from the University of Chicago early and was set to start Harvard Law School the following September. He spoke 15 languages. Shit. And he was fluent in nine of them. Nathan was a respected orthonologist who published a nationally acclaimed essay on warblers, which is a bird. He frequently led local bird watching expeditions. Nathan had everything going for him. It didn't make sense that he would kidnap and murder a child. When Crow interviewed him about the glasses, Leopold shrugged and boasted he was a well-respected nationally recognized birder who went to the area frequently and he must have dropped them while heading a bird expedition. When asked about an alibi, Leopold said he was with his best friend, Richard Loeb. They drove around in Leopold's red Willis night, threw back a few beers, picked up a couple girls, messed around, and dropping them off, headed home for the night. While Leopold was being interviewed, investigators were searching his room for any sign of evidence. Interestingly, they found what seemed to be a love letter written by Nathan Leopold to Richard Loeb. Richard, or Dick as his friends called him, Dickie when he was a kid, well he's still a kid but when he was younger, was 19 also. He was devastatingly good looking and very charismatic. Another bright boy who skipped grades and graduated from high school at the age of 14 and begun college at the University of Chicago as a full-time student at 15. Wow. Richard Loeb's father was a vice president of Sears, making him worth about $10 million in 1924. That's 750 million cantaloupes. Yes. Dude. I know. They were filthy. Filthy rich. Uh, Richard corroborated Nathan's alibi, but something wasn't sitting right with Crow, and he decided to keep them in custody to continue the questioning. Meanwhile, they matched Nathan's handwriting from his love letter to Richard to the address written on the ransom note. It seems the circumstantial evidence was beginning to pile up against these unlikely suspects. Then... Sent by Mr. Leopold, Nathan's father, Nathan's chauffeur appeared at the station with intentions of exonerating the boys by providing some pivotal information. He told investigators the boys couldn't have been involved because, in fact, the Red Willis Knight was in the shop being worked on the night in question, and that is Nathan Leopold's car. Well, that bomb did exactly the opposite of what it was supposed to, and it destroyed the boy's alibi. So Nathan had said, oh, we were driving around in my car. And the Uh chauffeur said, well, they couldn't have been involved because the car was in the shop the whole time. Like, if you're going to lie, get your story straight, assholes. Well, and Crow also thought it was strange that 
Nathan would lie about picking up girls and messing around when it was pretty obvious that him and Richard were lovers. So yeah. he thought it was suspicious that he, he would lie about something like that. So Crow realized that this was the moment that he needed to add more pressure during questioning. Nathan and Richard were being held separately, and the questioning became more intense. Eventually, Richard was the one who broke first. He confessed, and he gave details which only the true killer would know. And Crow took these details to Nathan, and Nathan quickly realized Richard had confessed, and backed into a corner, he also confessed. And immediately the boys began placing blame on one another. Okay, so I'm just, that's a little trigger warning. I'm just going to describe uh, what happened to Bobby Franks, mm-hmm. and it is graphic. Okay. The boys admitted they had spent months planning what they regarded as the perfect crime. From the very beginning, the idea had always been to murder somebody. They decided to carry out a crime that would get the most media attention, and that would be to kidnap, kill a child, and successfully collect a ransom. And the motive? Simply for the thrill of getting away with it. As soon as they confessed, the boys went over every detail with the police investigators, almost as if they were proud and bragging at how brilliant their plan and throw their planning had been. So they wrote the note even before they chose their victim. They rented a car on May 21st, 1924, and drove around their Kenwood neighborhood looking for a victim. And they happen upon Richard's own cousin, Bobby Franks. <gasps> what the fuck? I know. Nathan was driving, and Richard sat in the back seat of the gray rental car. Leaning over, Richard called out to Bobby, offering him a ride home. At first, Bobby declined because he was just blocks from his house. But Richard asked if he could ask him about the tennis racket he had used last week when they played a match. Oh my god. Bobby got in the car, and Richard asked if it was okay if they drove around the block while they talked about the racket. Bobby said sure. As soon as he was in the passenger seat with the door closed, Nathan began speeding around the block. Once around the corner, Richard reached from the back seat and covered Bobby's mouth to stifle screams and struck him in the head with a chisel they had purchased for this very occasion. Richard repeatedly struck Bobby from the back seat. He then reached over the seat and pulled Bobby to the back, where he stuffed a rag in his mouth, covered it with tape, and eventually this led to asphyxiation. Nathan and Richard then drove to the wetlands, stopping along the way for a hot dog and a root beer. Oh my god, fuck these guys. They're monsters. They drove around until dark, and then they callously disposed of Bobby Frank's body, but not before pouring acid on him. The murder of Bobby Frank's quickly became a national media circus. But soon who the murderers were superseded the horror of the crime itself. The idea that two teenagers born into privilege with essentially the promise of lifelong success would commit such a heinous crime just for fun fascinated and outraged the public. 
Some people blame the Roaring Twenties and the jazz music culture. Some blame the self-indulgent teenagers of the Twenties. Some blame the decline in church attendance. But how did this happen? In the media, Nathan Leopold seemed the more sinister of the two, the driving force behind this evil duo. When asked how he felt about Bobby Frank's murder, he casually replied, it doesn't concern him. That it was as easy to justify such a death as if it is to justify an entomologist impaling a beetle on a pin. Leopold was seen as the evil mastermind, and Loeb was seen as the handsome, carefree playboy. But in fact, it was the complete opposite. Although the boys had lived blocks from one another their entire lives, they didn't become close until college in 1920. Richard, just 15, in his sophomore year of college, and Nathan, six months older, was a freshman. Alike in many ways, they realized they were birds of a feather. Both golden boys of prominent Jewish families raised in the lap of luxury. They became fast friends, but some who knew both of them were surprised by this. And I think it was more than the surface similarities. I think they sensed a darkness in one another. A Mm -hmm. predator, a predatory nature in one another. I think they sensed something darker than just, hey, we live on the same block. We're both smart. I think it was more than that. I I think you're right. I think that when you're other in that kind of dark way, Mm -hmm. I think that you can see it in other people. Yeah. This was a quote by John Logan, a playwright who was in the PBS documentary, who commented in the PBS documentary. And I thought this quote was brilliant because it sums up who Richard Loeb was as a person and how terrifying he really was. Quote, Richard was a dazzling human. He was the kind of human being that when he walked through a room, the molecular energy changed. You couldn't help but look at him. He wore clothes incredibly well. He had a flashing smile. He was dazzlingly handsome. End quote. Richard had a dark side. He was fascinated with crime. He read detective novels, and he read the papers only for the crime. And Nathan was pretty much the complete opposite. He wasn't handsome like Richard, but his hair was never out of place, and he wore expensive suits, obviously. He was intense and dark and provocative, almost needling in a way, um, opposite Richard was gregarious he was cheerful he made friends wherever he went he was popular he was well liked and and Nathan was not uh repulsive actually is what I imagine him to be and all of my research he was kind of like the guy you would probably instantly dislike when you met him Mm -hmm. he was annoying he was a know-it-all he was bodacious braggart Uh, He was a one-upper. He had an opinion about everything. I know the type. You know the type. We all know the type. Mm -hmm. He was incredibly smart, and he wanted you to know it and feel inferior. Nathan fell in love with Richard the minute they were in each other's orbit. He was obsessed, and Richard loved having someone who worshipped him. They struck up a deal. 
Richard would participate in a sexual relationship if Nathan went along with Richard's plans. I think Richard was, and this is uh, uh, my opinion, and this is why I think Richard is so scary. I think Richard was searching for something. I think he was a sociopath. And I think that he had like this bottomless pit of boredom, just boredom. And Mm -hmm. he had a lack of feelings and a lack of empathy. And he had a superiority complex. And he just had like an eternal indifference for other people. And, you know, we see that with like basically every major CEO of any kind of corporation in America is a sociopath. Um, you know, we have extreme social climbers. We have people that work on Wall Street. They all, they all, I think sociopaths channel this boredom into something to get power. Like you have a CEO that just channels that to get to the top of wherever he can get the, the, best trader on wall street the highest social climber you know they get those feelings of being alive you know and i think uh richard had all this he had money he had social status he had good looks he he was charismatic he had access to education he had everything that people strive for and i think he was just looking for something that made him feel alive something that he he didn't have i totally agree with you I, I that's why I believe he was a driving force behind the murder. I totally agree with you. If you're born with everything on a silver platter, mm-hmm. the money, the status, the looks, the intelligence, I think that you're right. I think that he was bored. I think that he was the driving force behind this murder. Yeah. What a disgusting thing to think that somebody like that would just consider murder because they were bored bored and I think and I think that's a common it's um actually I read this book about sociopaths or I've read most of it I pick it up every now and then it's called the sociopath next door and it Mm -hmm. basically breaks down the different like the it breaks down um sociopaths and how we how they function around us and in our lives and how they're actually a lot closer to us than we think there's a lot more Mm -hmm. Um, it's an interesting, it's a good book. If you're interested in psychology and sociopaths, Sociopath Next Door is a great book. I, I believe Marcus Parks from Last pa- Podcast on the Left recommended it. And that's why I bought it. But Nathan also had a superiority complex. So he was into this German philosopher, um, the idea of the Ubermach, which translate mm-hmm. to Superman. And it's basically like this transcended man who is above law above morals above society he was really into that and because he was so smart he really felt that that him and Richard were these uh, ubermachs these supermen that just rules of society did not apply to them yeah wasn't that like Nietzsche or something yes which that's not the real way you pronounce that but I can't remember the real way you say it yeah, and that coupled with his obsession for Richard, Nathan was uh, more than willing to participate, even encourage Richard's behavior. So this all started, this path started with something as simple as cheating at cards. And cheating and getting away with it seemed to give Richard, uh, it seemed to give him some kind of feeling and he began to grow 
this criminal behavior, uh, like the scale of criminal behavior. Uh, it went from cheating on cards and then it, it escalated to stealing. They went to the University of Michigan and broke into a fraternity house and stole uh, a few things. Not They didn't get very much. They were disappointed. Uh, but they did get a typewriter. The typewriter they used for the ransom note, which was then linked back to them because Nathan kept it in his room. Because I guess apparently an IQ of 200, you, you're still an idiot. So that's just like more evidence that these crimes were purely motivated by boredom because they obviously would never need to steal anything. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, then they went from vandalism because it wasn't getting the attention that Richard wanted it to get. They moved Mm -hmm. to vandalism and then arson and finally frustrated that he wasn't getting the recognition in the media. Uh, Richard Loeb decided to up the ante and, he had decided that they were going to commit a murder and not just any murder, the kind of murder that would demand public attention. Because that's the only way this sick fuck can get a thrill at this point. Yes. So basically, you know, I think Richard was a sociopath and he wanted power. He had all the power he needed at his fingertips that any of us regular people would want. But he wanted the ultimate power. He wanted the power over life and death. And then the power on top of that to be able to get away with it. Um, And they never even considered that they would be caught. Never. Not once. They never considered it. And in fact... They never even expressed any remorse. They quite literally sat in the courtroom during their trial and laughed. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So the trial starts. And this, some say, is a trial of the century. And the Loeb family hired uh, renowned defense attorney Clarence Darrow. And the, the boys, Nathan and Richard, were up against the gallows. And at this point, all the Loeb family asked Clarence Darrow is keep them from death. So what Clarence Darrow did was he changed his plea from not guilty to guilty, which at the time it could still be the, the this way. I'm not a lawyer. Um, but when you plead guilty, it takes the way uh, the jury. So it would be a, solely a judge's decision. So they pleaded guilty. And Clarence Darrow was the kind of man who was a hate the sin, love the sinner. And he Mm -hmm. believed that people don't necessarily have free will. They are a product of their upbringing, their environment, and the decisions they make are just a product of the culmination of years leading up to who they were at that moment. He was... uh, against the death penalty for anyone so he spent months uh bringing in alienist which is or psychiatrist at the time mm-hmm. um he had four different alienists come to testify they argue they interviewed the boys they argued that they were neglected by their rich parents they were abused by their governesses and they were a product of their neglect and abuse and therefore they should not be hung in the gallows this is so funny because it's like the exact opposite of my story where Faye's entire living situation was completely ignored. Mm-hmm. 
And in yours, I feel like they're drumming up shit that wasn't even true Mm -hmm. about their living situation and using that as the defense. Yes. Now, I do think Richard was a sociopath. I don't think he could have helped it. I think he would have murdered either way. And I think he would have continued to murder had he not been caught. I agree. If you're thrill killing at fucking 20, I mean, Jesus Christ. I know. Leopold, I think, was on the fence and he happened to have uh, met the wrong person. Like one's the cult leader, one's the follower. Yes. And actually, in fact, that leads me to one of the alienists said that they had a king slave relationship mentality. And that is why this happened is Loeb was the Mm -hmm. king. And Leopold wanted to be his slave. And that was um, this weird fantasy that they were playing in real life. Mm -hmm. So after months, the judge ruled against the gallows. Okay. And he said, actually had nothing to do with the history which was shocking because they had spent months putting together. They had alienists on both sides, the prosecution and the defense, and months mm-hmm. they had, and it had nothing that bared no mind on the judge's decision. He actually only ruled in the favor of life in prison because of their age, how young wow. they were. And Illinois at the time had never sentenced or put anyone to death younger than 24. Yeah. So there was public outcry. I mean, they said the 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 papers wrote if they don't get death, then what constitute death? Like this is a, a heinous murder. They murdered a child in cold blood, purposely just for fun. Yeah. If this doesn't deserve the death penalty, then what does? So they were sentenced to ninety nine years, or excuse me, they were sentenced to life in prison plus ninety nine years. For the kidnapping and murder of Bobby Franks. The men went to um, Juliet Prison where they expanded the prison school to add a high school and a junior college. They expanded the library and they did a lot of work in the library in the school. Loeb was attacked by a fellow inmate and killed in 1936 so he just lived for another decade. Leopold volunteered in the hospital and he continued to work in the library and the prison school. He was a he was said to be a model prisoner. Um, he was considered melancholy, obviously. I mean, I don't feel terrible for his depression. He was released by the parole board 33 years later in 1958. He wrote a book titled Life Plus 99 Years where Nathan Leopold eventually expressed remorse for the murder of Bobby Franks. He said in his book at the time he did not feel any remorse and it took him years in prison to feel remorse. And once he felt remorse, it was his daily companion. He moved to Puerto Rico and became an x-ray tech. And he married a widowed florist And he continued his birding work. He died at the age of 66 in 1971 from a diabetic-related heart attack. And that is the terrible and frightening case and murder of Bobby Franks. I don't like how that guy just got to go live a life. What the hell? I don't like that. I feel, And I wrote this note. Um, 
at the end, just kind of like an informal little note. And I didn't know if I was going to mention it or not, but I think that not only was it an injustice that Nathan Leopold was released from prison because Bobby Franks wasn't given an option. He was given a death sentence at 14 at the hands of his cousin, someone he trusted, no less. That's so Um, awful. But it's incredibly sad and disappointing that the media kind of overshadowed what a horrific crime and the loss of Bobby Franks was to his family and his Mm -hmm. friends and his community and the potential that he could have had in favor of reporting about these, you know, rich teenagers that were mysterious and they were an enigma they were nobody understood why they would do something like this and it's like you know they got all the they got the press that they wanted they got exactly what they wanted and it, it, it's just it's sad I mean and this is I think why this case is still so researched because people do I mean just human nature you want to know why you want to know why and yeah. nobody knows why except Nathan and Richard. I can't, Like I said, I gave my opinion. I think Richard was just a straight-up sociopath, and he was doing things that made him feel alive, and they just happened to be, like, dark and crimes. And mm-hmm. it's just unfortunate, you know, I, you know, good riddance to him. Um, now, I believe in rehabilitation. Uh, as far as we know, Nathan Leopold never hurt anybody else mm-hmm. when he after he was released but I think he should have spent his life in prison I too believe in rehabilitation and am against the death penalty um and this is one of those cases where I I mean I guess you know he never hurt anybody again and mm-hmm. he did his time and maybe he learned his lesson according to him he did but it is hard because a young boy did lose his life mm-hmm yeah. And it's just hard to find justice there. Maybe mm-hmm. there is no justice in cases like this, no matter what happens to the perpetrator. I think that is a great point because even if Nathan Leopold would have spent life in prison, Bobby Frank's family still lost their 14 year old. They still lost a loved one and in a horrific way. Yeah. You know, I think I I stand by uh, my opinion that I think while he seemed to be rehabilitated, I think Nathan Leopold should have spent his life in prison. And also, you have to think in prison, he did, I'm assuming, it didn't say this anywhere, but I'm assuming he probably helped rehabilitate other prisoners through the school system that he expanded Mm -hmm. in the library and um, at the end of his life, I believe in his book, he said that helping people was what gave him his kicks. Well, that's a good turn. He deserved life, a life sentence, and he deserved to spend his life in prison, is my opinion. And I'm sticking to it. Man, these cases were twisty and turny. Yeah, they were. Both of them had situations where you thought you knew people's roles and Mm -hmm. then they shifted Mm -hmm. and both of their names were confusing as fuck which I don't I don't like that it makes it makes for a first couple uh days of research kind of 
sake. I was like, wait, who was that again? Which one was that again? <laughs> that was on an episode of Crime to Remember. I looked. I looked on demand. I couldn't find it. I'm pretty sure it was because I know that story and I'm pretty sure it was from that. Just I simply believe it was that because Crime to Remember does such a beautiful job of oh my doing the older ca- their older cases, their wardrobe and their styling is so well done it's actually the only show that I really appreciate the reenactments in because usually I don't really care for reenactments no I, I I me too I prefer that just the people who are involved sit and give their side of things mm-hmm. um and reenactments can kind of cheapen a harrowing story and a crime to remember the cinematography is wonderful there like you said the time period uh the wardrobe stylists on that show are phenomenal yeah Dare I say Emmy? Say it. Emmy. I'm saying Emmy. <laughs> Emmy. 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 You did a great job telling that truly horrible story. And I, even though I knew it, I forgot aspects of it, like the acid. God, that's brutal. And also, these guys thought they were so fucking smart and then dropped their glasses. I know. I know. Idiots. I know. They threw the typewriter away, uh, but it was near near this the wetlands and the police found it and that's how they matched the typewriting to the ransom note they definitely weren't as smart as they thought they were no maybe people just tell rich people oh you're so smart because harvard wants your fucking daddy's money (laughs) yes i think that's it i think that's it i actually if i can find 90 a life plus 99 at the library because i refuse to pay for mm-hmm. his book. If I can find that at the library, I would read that because it would be interesting to see his perspective so many years later after sitting and thinking about the gravity yeah. of what he had done. Well, I'll do you one better. If I'm ever in Puerto Rico, I will go to his house and I'll steal it from him. <laughs> <laughs> so not only will he not get my money, but he'll also be robbed. Yes. And I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is the conclusion of our Deadly Couples episode. And the conclusion of our very loose theme of love. Yes. Very loose theme of love for the month of February. Yes. Yes. And so what better way to go out the month of love with loving yourself Locking those doors and lighting some sage. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back next week with a one and done episode. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. My phone just started ringing. That's okay. I'm talking to my only friend. Who the fuck's calling me? <laughs> Shut up.